This is UCD Business Impact, the new podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week we will be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and indeed the world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now, as many of you will know, Ireland is facing some stark economic realities from COVID-19. We're looking at an astonishing, really, budget deficit of 30 billion potentially this year. Unemployment is going to ease over 20%. And even next year, we'll probably again see a deficit and unemployment will probably, at a best case scenario, be over 10%. So everyone is facing into that very bleak outlook going forward into the next year and beyond. And what we're all wondering is, is there outside forces, outside agencies and Maybe our European allies and friends can help us with some of these challenges. And a man who now joins me can shed a bit of light on that. That's Andrew McDowell. He is the EIB's Vice President, the European Investment Bank Vice President, appointed in 2016. And this is what they call the EU's bank, which is owned by the 27 EU states and has a balance sheet of 550 billion euros at its disposal, of some of which Ireland and other countries in Europe that are really facing some very difficult times fiscally and they are hoping to tap into this, and there's a number of schemes available at the EIB, and Andrew has been involved in setting them up and administering them over recent years as Ireland uh, representatively also represents some other countries in the role. So welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thank you very much for joining us all the way from Luxembourg. Thank you, Emma. It's great to be uh, great to be on the show as, as a, both an MBS and MBA grad from the Smurfa School. It's uh, it's very nice to join you. Okay, well, thank you. You've had four years, incredible years over there. You certainly haven't been quiet. Um, COVID-19 is the biggest crisis you've probably been involved in, but there was a one or two before that as well. So you've been battle-hardened um, during this period. I suppose I was saying in my intro, what's fascinating is your, the role of the bank that you work with, your own personal role, it's never seemed more relevant in the sense that governments, wherever they are, right across from Washington, across to the Asia-Pacific region, all of them are going to be facing tough times. They're going to have large deficits. They're going to need stimulus. They're going to need cash. They're going to need lending. They're going to need credit. So is this the time where the European Investment Bank can be more relevant than ever, in your opinion? I hope so. That's certainly our intention. I mean, uh, we're a public institution, as you've said, owned by the member states, and we need to show our relevance and capacity to help in a time like this. This crisis is exceptional. I, I, I mean, I actually, I worked in government, in the Irish government, as, a, as Enda Kenny's economic advisor from 2011. And we all thought that was the, you know, the crisis of the century in a way that, you know, it couldn't get much worse than that. And of course, what we're seeing now, particularly on a, on a, on a global basis, is, is a crisis uh, that's even worse than the financial and sovereign debt crisis of 2008, 2011. So, but just like the last crisis when the EIB, you know, stepped up to try and step into the shoe, you know, and re- replace the, the, the lost lending by the commercial banks and other investors and try to play that counter cyclical role as an institution that would lean against the wind and support the economy against the headwinds of recession and depression. Again, we, we, we will seek to play that role. And uh, we are a counter cyclical institution. We do tend to, in some ways, pull back a little bit when times are very good and let the private sector do its job. And, and you know, when there's plentiful access to private sector finance, we're not there to compete with it. But when times do get very difficult and there is a lack of access to finance and, and difficulties in accessing finance is part of the problem, 
then there is a big role for the European Investment Bank to, to help fill that gap. So, you know, we've, uh, we've already in the last couple of months announced, you know, a number of initiatives to mobilize about 40 to 50 billion in new lending across the union in various ways, as well as in partner countries outside the EU. But last week, we've only, we just got approval from our board of directors following agreement at EU finance minister's level to massively step up our engagement with the private sector, and particularly in the provision through financial intermediaries of working capital for SMEs across the union. So we now have in place a 25 billion facility that we can use with the aim of mobilizing up to 200 billion in capital, mainly working capital, but also equity and some longer term financing for corporates, particularly SMEs. And our mission now is to, now that we have that in place, is to roll this out in every single country, including Ireland, over the coming months. Okay, well, listen, we'll talk a little bit more in a few minutes about those specific projects and the capabilities of the EIB. But let's rewind a little bit to 2016 when you were appointed. As you said, you went from one crisis. It now looks like, in circularity terms, you're back to, to where you started in terms of these big fiscal crises. Um, just paint for me a little bit about your job in particular. Um, you don't just represent Ireland because I think a lot of the times when you have been in the media, the Irish audience thinks of you a bit like an EU commissioner. You go there, you're our man in Luxembourg, but that's not the role. You represent other countries and you have a broader remit. Just talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I was I was working in uh, you know for the Irish government from 2011 2016. I did uh, I did three elections. Uh, and one full term in government. We came through the election in 2016, and it was always my intention that I would, uh, that having done one full, one full term in government, having, having done that, that economic crisis, that I would then you know, head back into a, uh, into a private sector role or non-governmental role. So this, this opportunity came up with the EIB. I mean, basically, the way the EIB works is it's got a management committee that runs the bank that comprises eight vice presidents and the president of the bank, Werner Hoyer, and we run the bank on a day-to-day basis. Now, of those eight vice presidents, the three large countries, uh, Germany, Italy, France, they're the big shareholders, have a permanent place on the management committee. The other places are taken up by the other EU countries who share the right within constituencies uh, to, uh, to nominate members of the management committee. And Ireland is in a constituency with Denmark, Greece, and Romania. And so every 12 years, Ireland's opportunity comes up to nominate uh, a vice president for the institution. Now, actually, this was advertised. This was a, um, a competitive process to, uh, uh, to get the nomination from Ireland. I applied with about you know, 12, 14 other people, and I came through the process in the end and was nominated by Ireland, Denmark, Romania, and Greece for this seat on the management committee back in 2016. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm no longer there representing Ireland. I'm, I'm there representing the bank in Ireland in a sense, and as well as a number of other countries, and serving the interests of the institution. So how do you kind of keep an eye on the Irish situation? Obviously, you're interested, you have family back home in Ireland and so on. But how do you kind of carry those two roles? Yes, you're representing that wider um, landscape. But at the same time, you know, you, you want to see Ireland prosper, you want to see it do well economically and so on. So how do you try and square those two things? I think what I saw in Ireland uh, when I arrived was a lack of kind of formalized institutional engagement. So, I mean, the IB had a you know, reasonable uh, history of doing business in Ireland and then was particularly supportive in certain sectors such as project finance and PPPs and so on. 
but the, the, the kind of engagement with the policymakers um, in Ireland was spur- sporadic and wasn't very well formalized. So I did two things. Uh, I, first of all, I, I set up a local office of the EIB. Now, there was offices of the EIB in many other European countries, but mostly the larger ones, but not in Ireland. I think I made a good case that post-Brexit, you know, I came in just after the UK had voted, obviously, to leave the European Union in uh, in June 2016. I made a good case that Ireland was going to need, you know, a particular level of attention and support. So I got got the support of my colleagues on the Management Committee to set up a dedicated office in Dublin. I also set up a new kind of institution called the EIB Ireland Financing Group, which is basically a biannual meeting between the EIB and all the different parts of the EIB with different lines of business in Ireland and the Irish government, chaired by the Minister of Finance, originally Michael Noonan, now Pascal Donoghue, who chairs this meeting twice a year. And he brings together all the relevant Irish ministries, ministers, government agencies, basically to go through our pipeline in Ireland and indicate to us what their political priorities are in terms of investment areas. And so that we can adapt our business accordingly. I mean, at the end of the day, we're there to support EU policy priorities. But of course, you know, in the, in the vast majority of circumstances, they correspond almost exactly to Ireland's own needs in terms of investment in climate action, in innovation, in SMEs, in, in, uh, in infrastructure and so on. But that, between those two institutional changes, I think it really has helped uh, align our, our business much better in Ireland. To the point where, yeah, last year we, um, we had a record year in Ireland. We did more business here than we've, we've ever done before. And uh, I, I would expect that to continue past my mandate at the EIB because I hope those institutional changes will, will have a longer lasting impact than my, own, than, my own, uh, than my own presence here. And what do you put it down to that previous, you, you were saying there was some engagement, but maybe it was at the odd occasional road project and so on. Was it just people didn't see the potential that was there with that relationship with the EIB or was there just eyes were on other prizes or whatever? What, what, what do you think happened in, in all those years that we didn't engage enough and, and didn't bring some of this credit into the Irish economy? I think part of it as well was, was um, an institutional gaps in Ireland. Uh, so most European countries have you know, national promotional banks or national promotional institutions that are very important intermediaries for the EIB in helping to structure deals. Don't forget, the EIB is a big bank, you know, balance sheet of about 600 billion, uh, but with a relatively small workforce of about 4,000. That's very centralized in Luxembourg and, you know, is doing deals not just in, in 27 EU member states, but indeed in 100 countries across the world. And so it very much relies on local partners to help structure those deals so that, uh, so that um, you know, it, it, they can benefit from you know, the economies of scale available from the European Investment Bank. In Ireland, there was certain institutional gaps, so there wasn't a national promotional bank. Now, back in 2012, the then government legislated to establish the Strategic Banking Corporation of Ireland, as well as New Era and the Irish Strategic Investment Fund. Now, these have become very important partners for the EIB in Ireland. And quite frequently, uh, we are now co-financing with them or we're supporting initiatives being put in place by these agencies in Ireland. And I think that's also helped a lot, as well as the presence on the ground that we now have, 
and as well as the CIB Ireland Financing Group. Also, I think the Irish, you know, the Irish market for particularly for infrastructure for infrastructure financing has become quite sophisticated, and uh, and 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 now really does benefit from the IB to a greater extent than it did before. So I think the Irish PPP market is now one of the most sophisticated in the world, and again, that's another area where. We, you know, we bring a lot of expertise in financial firepower. So uh, that's been good for Ireland as well. Now, Andrew, for the benefit of our, our listeners of the podcast, can you just walk us through some of the kinds of projects that the EIB has been involved in? I know it stretches everything from schools to ferries and, and, and all sorts of large, chunky infrastructure projects. But can you kind of bring alive for us, just give us our listeners an idea of the kind of things you've been backing in recent years? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, traditionally, the, you know, the EIB is a you know, a very uh, large financier of large infrastructure projects, government-backed infrastructure projects. And, and, and that's been the mainstay of the EIB business for, for you know, the first 50 years of its, of its existence. And that still continues to, you know, to be a big part of our business. And that's projects like, you know, the National Children's Hospital, say, take for an example, where um, we're providing about 500 million in, in debt financing for that project. And we provide it through a traditional public sector loan through the NTMA. And, you know, the, basically the Irish government benefits from a very, very low interest rate on a very long-term loan for a project that is in line with EU policy priorities. Obviously, we also back infrastructure, uh, uh, state infrastructure projects in other ways, including through public-private partnerships. In other words, where the state contracts with a private uh, contractor to build and operate and maintain the infrastructure, and we finance the private operator. Uh, and again, this has been a big part of VIB's business for a long period of time. We're probably the biggest financier of public-private partnerships in the world. And in Ireland, just to, to, to you know, uh, mention some examples, obviously, you know, the, uh, the Grange-Gorman campus of DIT uh, that's under construction right now, is, a, is an EIB finance project uh, where we're financing BAM, who is the promoter, you know, who's, who's put in place an SVV to build that project. We are the main financier of, uh, of BAM. But increasingly, uh, Emmett, you know, we've moved beyond infrastructure financing in, into other lines of business. And this was particularly since the last banking and financial crisis 10 years ago, when the EIB was asked to step in where the commercial banks were pulling out in the financing of SMEs and corporates uh, in particular. So we've now built up very strong business lines across the union, but also in Ireland in in SME uh, financing through financial intermediaries. And this is where we basically offer guarantees to the commercial banks that we will take a certain uh, proportion of the risk on their portfolio of commercial loans where they build up a portfolio of small loans that we wouldn't do directly. We'll just say we will take X percent of the risk on those loans to make it more interesting for the commercial bank to continue to lend uh, to SMEs. Now, in Ireland, we now do that through the Strategic Banking Corporation of Ireland. So we now transact, we provide a guarantee to this SBCI who passes that guarantee onto the commercial banks I mean, a classic example of this would have been after Brexit, the agricultural sector was hit very hard, you recall, particularly by the change in the exchange rate and had big working capital problems. And the commercial banks were kind of reluctant to lend because, you know, there was so much uncertainty 
over the impact of Brexit on large parts of the agricultural sector, that, you know, the, the, the liquidity became quite difficult. So we stepped in with a very large guarantee for a scheme called the Agricultural Cash Flow Scheme that basically got the commercial banks to start lending again at low interest rates for working capital. We did the same with the Brexit uh, loan scheme, which was a working capital scheme for companies that were going to be affected by Brexit, not just agriculture, but SMEs. And last year, we put in place a new scheme called the Future Growth Loan Scheme, which was about providing not just working capital, but long-term, eight to 10-year term finance for businesses that wanted to invest but couldn't get access to loans of that type of maturity and tenor, or certainly couldn't get access to them without putting a lot of collateral on the table, which was very difficult for a lot of firms, particularly for firms that wanted to change their business line in anticipation of Brexit as well. So again, we provided the guarantee that got the banks to start lending into, into this market. And then finally, we, we, you know, we're now doing an awful lot of, um, of direct lending to larger corporates. So obviously for SMEs or for smaller loans, and for us, a smaller loan is kind of less than 10 million. We don't, we don't really do direct lending uh, for loans of less than 10 million. But for loans higher than that, with you know, mid or large size Irish corporates, we're building up a reasonably strong business line. We've also supported quite extensively a, a number of smaller, highly innovative companies uh, developing new technologies that don't have access to bank finance. Companies like Nuritas, for example, would be, would be a good example as a company investing heavily in artificial uh, technology. So we're now broadening our business to engage more directly with them, uh, with Irish corporates, particularly those that are investing heavily in innovation and uh, that are, you know, st- perhaps struggling to raise sufficient amounts of debt or equity from the commercial uh, banking system or the venture capital system that are vulnerable uh, in some ways to selling out prematurely, particularly to American or Chinese investors, you know, who would then move their management and research functions back out of Europe again. And, and Europe would lose the benefit of the investments it's made in public and private research that have, that have underpinned these companies. So we're, we're providing the financing that keeps these companies European for longer, perhaps until they can uh, go to the public capital markets themselves. And that's been a great line of business in Ireland because Ireland has a great cluster of, you know, of software and life sciences companies that are, that are in this situation. So I think Ireland is one of the hotspots for this type of financing across the EU. And Andrew, what are the challenges I'm hearing? I'm hearing a lot about lending. I'm hearing a lot about credit. In this pandemic economy, of course, a lot of companies are, are, are really in a difficult situation where you know, even taking on loans or extra debt is a problem. A lot of them are looking for grants. And that's a big part of the EU recovery package that's currently being discussed as me and you talk. Is it a challenge for the EIB that what you've got is reasonably okay it's, it's attractively priced but it's reasonably conventional credit available credit lines deadlines is it a problem for you that what a lot of companies are looking for is a different thing which is grants um essentially money they don't necessarily have to pay back is that going to be your biggest challenge that some of the companies are looking for something that you just don't have the way you're institutionally set up yeah, I mean, I think obviously what we what we need to be seen to be doing is complementing other interventions from uh, from national governments and other EU interventions. I mean, we recognise liquidity is extremely important uh, for firms right now, and um, you know, liquidity crises can quickly turn into solvency crises 
if they're, if they're not if they're not addressed quickly. But sometimes liquidity alone, as you say, is not is not the uh, is not the right answer. It needs to be complemented by by in some cases grant aid from the member states themselves, or indeed solvency support through the provision of equity. Now we do provide uh, equity financing. Uh, so our subsidiary, the European Investment Fund, uh, is is the main provider of venture capital across the European Union, and indeed. We're, we're probably alongside Enterprise Ireland and the Art Strategic Investment Fund. We're the biggest provider of, of equity for, for venture capital uh, in Ireland right now. And as we look ahead over the course of this crisis, I think we're going to, um, we're going to see a big demand for, for increased investment in a lot of the, uh, the venture capital funds in Ireland. Uh, I think they're, they're, you know, the end beneficiaries, the innovative, you know, the startups and other, you know, fast-growing innovative companies are going to need more equity. They're going to need more cash to keep them alive during this crisis. And uh, that's going to be one of the interventions certainly we make um, with, with the Irish Strategic Investment Fund, with Enterprise Ireland, uh, is, is trying to keep alive that innovation ecosystem that's been built up so successfully in Ireland over the last 15 to 20 years. Uh, so we can help on the equity side as well. But yes, on the grant aid side, that is for the member states themselves uh, to finance. You've been in government, Andrew, before. Um, would you have any advice for the likes of Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue? And what I mean by that is he's going to have to, at some stage, cut this deficit. He's going to have to trim it. And you know, normally, or certainly traditionally, the capital budget has taken a bit of a swipe. Um, if you were in the Irish government, and there's going to be a new government in the next few months of some stripe, we don't know yet, would you advise them to start working more actively with the EIB in terms of lining up particular capital projects on the runway, as it were, that might get funding? Should they be thinking along those lines, or do you sense they're already thinking along those lines? I, I, I think they are already thinking along those lines, Emmett. Um, I'd, be, be a very, I'd be very reluctant as a, <clears throat> as a you know... One of these people to uh, you know from from a from a distance to be start uh, offering advice obviously to in what's a very challenging situation, but there clearly are things the IB can help with, including on uh, you know on, on addressing some of the budgetary challenges uh, and protecting the infrastructure program that's being put in place. I mean, I think drawing down obviously some of the supports that we've available, obviously particularly for the enterprise sector, uh, including the guarantees, and don't forget. What we can help do is ease the fiscal implications of some of the guarantees, the national guarantees. We, we can provide counter guarantees to the Irish state in terms of their own supports for the enterprise base and ease the fiscal cost of that. We can also do a lot of innovative things in Ireland. So, I mean, obviously, Ireland has to start investing heavily in the green agenda. This looks like it's going to be obviously a theme of the new program for government for obvious reasons. There's, it seems there's a discussion on very aggressive greenhouse gas reduction targets for Ireland. But there's areas like energy efficiency that we, where we can, we can help an awful lot. You know, the, the Irish government could, um, you know, give us a mandate to finance very large increases in investment in the public building stock, in social housing, in schools, in hospitals. And, and there's ways to take this out of the budget. There's ways to transfer this risk to the private sector and have the private sector finance the upfront investments and get repaid out of the reduction in the energy bills over long periods of time. And we've done this in many countries. 
And in that way, you can you can stimulate the economy, you can protect jobs, you can cut greenhouse gas emissions, all while while pursuing you know fiscal consolidation at the, at the same time. You know, it's the same obviously in the investments in in green you know renewable energy. Again, you know through project finance, public private partnerships, and so on, we we can help protect investments in these areas. Uh, from the inevitable, inevitable trade-offs that the government is going to find itself in over the over the coming years. So, but that's a, that's the value of having this uh, EIB Ireland financing group in place, chaired by the Minister of Finance. We basically get asked to present ways in which we can address the priorities. And I would expect shortly after the formation of a new government, when there's a you know a clear government program in place, that we will be into government buildings to present our ideas about how we can support the delivery of those commitments. Now, Andrew, you, you've been uh, four hectic years there in the road, and one of the key areas you've been zoning in on is energy. You mentioned that in an Irish context there. But what I'm really fascinated by is you, you had to make a decision. You did a big consultation process about energy lending in Europe. And one of those big things you had to look at was what kind of lending does the bank do, uh, particularly in relation to fossil fuel uh, sectors, which is highly controversial in the context of climate change. Can you tell me a little bit about that process and also the kind of really crunch decisions the bank had to make about what kind of projects you invest in? Yeah, so I mean, energy lending is one of the biggest, uh, one of the bank's biggest lines of business. As as I said earlier, it's about 20% of our overall portfolio. So we we have about 100 billion out there invested in in energy projects mainly in the european union but but elsewhere as well and you know a lot of that is obviously renewable energy energy efficiency projects but a lot of it has also been fossil fuel projects traditionally i mean a little bit of oil and gas exploration and production uh, but also a lot of gas transportation in terms of pipelines distribution grids and so on as well as gas-fired, you know, generation, power generation projects. Now, when I came in to the bank in September 2016 and was, uh, was uh, you know, g- given the energy portfolio to, uh, to manage and direct, it was also quite clear that the world was now moving in a different direction. This is obviously, you know, this was about eight months after the Paris Climate Agreement um, the European Union was preparing a new energy package and a new set of very aggressive energy and climate targets for 2030. You know, election after election across the union was showing that the green agenda and the environment and environmental agenda was becoming increasingly important to people. And the bank very much saw its future as positioning itself as, as the EU's climate bank, as becoming the international financing institution that was at the cutting edge when it came to understanding how to structure and finance projects that delivered greenhouse gas reductions as well as uh, as climate adaptation. It just wasn't conceivable, Emmett, that we would position ourselves as the EU Climate Bank uh, and that this would be credible while at the same time we were continuing to finance, you know, unmitigated gas uh, and even oil projects, you know, across the Union of the world. So I spent uh, two years basically in a process to uh, to develop a new set of kind of policies for the bank as to what we could finance and what we couldn't. Of course, this has to be approved by the member states themselves. This isn't an internal bank decision. This has to be approved by our board of directors and the shareholders representing uh, the member states of the European Union. And 
you know, the proposition I put, obviously, to the member states, uh, well, having got internal agreement that this is the right direction for the institution, the proposition I put was, firstly, it's not conceivable you know, that we continue to finance, um, you know, that, that climate is, is Europe's big priority, that Europe wants to lead the world in climate, but that Europe's bank is continuing to finance, um, you know, gas projects all over the place. And secondly, I also made the case, and I think this is very important, that it wasn't just about policy alignment, it was also about risk, that it was becoming increasingly risky for us as a, as a, a financial institution that often lent for 20 to 25 years for energy projects, that lending for energy projects uh, or gas projects that wouldn't you know, get repaid until the 2040s was becoming quite foolish, you know, that new technology and policies were likely to overtake, um, you know, these projects to the point where, you know, we were underpricing the risks associated. with And to have too much of this type of risk on our balance sheet was not a good idea. In the end, we got approval. Uh, you know, it was a tough uh, process over the course of 2019 in particular. It did kind of pit a lot of the member states against each other. Because don't forget, they're coming from very different places in terms of the energy transition. You know, some countries in Central and Eastern Europe are a lot further behind the transition away from coal in particular than the countries in, in Northern Europe. They haven't got the same type of renewable energy markets. They haven't got as sophisticated financial markets to finance the clean energy transition. So what they needed was an awful lot of reassurance from both the bank and the commission that we would support them to a greater extent in the clean energy transition than we had done so, so far. And obviously, a big part of the, you know, the, the announcements we made last November, as well as the announcement by the Commission earlier this year, has been about the just transition, has been about how we accompany the clean energy transition with much more financing in those countries uh, that are more vulnerable and dependent on fossil fuels, not just to transform their energy systems, but to transform their economic systems generally so that we can provide employment to the people who will lose out as a result of the, um, you know, the dismantling of coal mines and coal-fired power generations and so on. So we put a package together uh, you know, as in all political deals that involved compromises. So, we, um, so in the end, yes, we, we last November got a decision from our board of directors that has made the EIB now the first international financing institution in the world to commit to no longer lend to unabated fossil fuel energy projects. Well, that sounds like a, a kind of a key initiative in your four years. And that brings me on to what the future may hold for you. You're coming up to the end once the summer is over. Um, and, and there's only probably so much you can tell me about the end in reply to this question. But what do you hope to do after you leave the EIB? Do you hope to um, play a role in a European context or an Irish context? And can you look back a little bit for us on, on maybe two or three highlights of your time in the role? Well, I mean, I think uh, to answer your second question first, yeah, I certainly think um, getting the approval for the energy lending policy was, was for me a big, personal, uh, a big personal highlight. And it certainly put the EIB into, the, into you know, for a brief period of time back, you know, last year, put, put us into the global spotlight and uh, generated a degree of ten attention for the institution that was unprecedented. But I, I really do think it's one that positions the institution very, very well now for, uh, for the challenges ahead. The other, you know, the other areas I really worked on hard uh, 
as an economist, you know, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a, um, uh, I'm a bit of a zealot. When it comes to making sure a public institution like, like the EIB does something different than the private sector, you know, does something that the private sector is not able or willing to do on its own. There's no point in the EIB simply competing with private sector banks and private sector financiers uh, to do deals that would be done anyway. As a public institution, we have to be seen to complement the private sector and to provide what we call this concept of additionality, doing of making a difference in a project. I mean, this concept was kind of well understood, but we really didn't have a framework within the bank for measuring properly our additionality project by project and persuading you know, our stakeholders, our board of directors, our board of governors, wider stakeholders that in every project we are making a difference. And this is something I worked very hard on, Emmett, uh, over the four years was to put in place a new framework for measuring and reporting on the bank's additionality. And it's, a, it's not as visible as something like the energy lending policy, but in fact makes a huge difference in terms of the types of projects we select uh, and pushes us to try and take on those projects that are just a little bit more difficult to do rather than just take the easy ones that the private sector could do anyway. And again, I hope this will make a long-term difference to the institution. And, I, and then from a more parochial perspective, yes, I am very pleased at how we built up our, um, our presence in Ireland and our visibility in Ireland. And uh, okay, we're not, you know, VIP is not a household name by any means. But certainly, I think within the business community, within the financial community, uh, when people are looking at how to finance, you know, certain projects, I think the EIB, the name of the EIB might be slightly closer to hand now than it was four or five years ago. And uh, I certainly hope that's a, you know, a foundation for further growth of the EIB in Ireland over, over the next decade. What next? I don't, I, I really don't know, Emmett. Uh, Maybe I'll come and teach. Maybe I'll come and teach in UCD. If, if you <laughs> UCD, you know, we'll see. You'll see what you're going next. I mean, it's been a fascinating four years. You've learned a lot, as you said. It's great to see the connections between Ireland and the EIB opening up. We do need credit, the well competitively priced credit projects, as you say, that add something that aren't just uh, displacing and crowding at the banks. And you've certainly shown that that's been done. Uh, and I think it will be really interesting to see if your successors can keep some of those links going and keep some of those connections going. So we wish you the best um, in your next endeavor or whatever you take on. Um, think, think the next few months of the summer with um, COVID-19 will be pretty busy anyway. So uh, you're, it's not as if uh, the pace is going to uh, slow down in any way. But thanks for coming on Business Impact today. Thank you very much, Andrew McDowell. Thanks, Emma.